Amen. Wonderful singing this morning. It's so great to be with you and to be together this morning to worship and fellowship. And we're so glad to see all of our members this morning, as well as those of you who are visiting. And we want you to know that you are always welcome here. And we're so gl glad you're here. We're blessed to have you. And we hope that your time with us this morning is a blessing to you as well. When my family moved to White House, I was about to start middle school, leaving East Texas Christian Academy and going to White House Middle School. And it was that summer before I started sixth grade, and we went to the annual yesteryear celebration. Has anybody gone to that in White House? You remember that? I don't know if they still do that, but, but we went that, that summer, and uh, my brother's a year older than me, and we have a sister who's two years younger, and we just thought it was so much fun. We really enjoyed it. There was one area that, as a little boy, we couldn't help but noticing. It was kind of further back and, and away from other activities, and it was a Bell helicopter, you know, the kind with the big bubble uh, canopy on the front. And it was so awesome, and they were giving helicopter rides. And I, I never, it never crossed my mind that maybe I could actually ride in that. And I overheard my dad talking to my older brother, and I learned that he was, my dad was going to take my brother up in the helicopter. He, he did, he built models of fighter jets, you know, the plastic models you glue together and put the decals on and all that. And he really enjoyed that and, and had books about that. And so my dad was going to take him up in that helicopter. And, and I didn't know anything about, you know, it costs money or anything like that. And I, I just said, hey, I want to go too. Well, my dad knew that they only took up two people at a time. Only two people could go. And he had wanted to take my brother, and not that he wasn't wanting to do anything with me, but to do something special with my brother. But when I said that I wanted to go... He said, he, I knew how much he wanted to ride in it too, but he gave up his seat and insisted that I go with my brother. And I, I, didn't, I didn't understand that that was going to mean my dad wasn't going to get to ride in the helicopter. I didn't want that. And I tried to convince him, no, it's okay. I don't, I don't have to do it. You, you go. You're, you're the one that wanted to. But he, he made me ride in the helicopter. And, of course, I wanted to, but he insisted that I did. He gave up his seat so that I could have that experience with my brother. Riding in that helicopter was just an awesome experience. And I think from what I remember, it just went straight up in the air and kind of sat there and right back down. But man, that's all we needed. That was the coolest thing in the world. That big bubble canopy, just you felt like you were just floating up there in the sky. It was, it was awesome. And as much as I enjoyed it and was thankful for it, I regretted that my dad didn't get to ride because I knew that he really wanted to, that he liked that kind of thing too. But I also learned something important about being a dad, about being a father, and that dads, being Father's Day, we're talking about, dads often give up what they want for their children and for their wife. And that's part of being a dad, isn't it? There's times when you're, you, you put their desires, their wishes, their wants, even the little things in front of what you want. So I want to say to you this morning, Happy Father's Day. And I really mean that. Thank you, Matt, for saying that. We want you to know fathers, dads, husbands, that, 
that you're supported here, that we encourage you, that we want to build men up. You know, it's, it's uh, commonly known that on Mother's Day, the sermons are all about how mothers are so wonderful and all the wonderful things that they do and how great they are. And then we get to Father's Day and we beat up on them and we tell them all the things they ought to be and ought to be doing, right? Well, that's not what I want to do this morning. I want to encourage you. I hope that you'll feel that you'll feel encouraged and uplifted. And I want you to be challenged. We always want to be challenged with God's word, but I want you to feel uplifted when you leave as a husband and as a father. Because I want you to understand that your your role, your existence, your presence, your job as a husband and a dad is vitally important to your family and to society. That you are needed You're necessary. No matter what culture says, no matter what you hear, no matter what others want to push on you, no, no matter any of that other stuff, that stuff's not true. What's true is that the world needs husbands and fathers active and engaged in the lives of their family. And so that's what I want to encourage us with this morning. You know, dads typically don't want a lot of attention from anyone. Uh, they don't want anyone to make a big deal about their birthdays or Father's Day. Uh, one father said that uh, Father's Day is the only day he gets complete obedience from his family. He tells them not to spend a lot of money on him, and they don't. <laughs> At least he got that one day, right? You know, inside... Every boy and man is a question that they want and need answered. And it's always there. And the question is, do I have what it takes? As a little boy, they want to know, do I have, you know, what it takes to to jump really far, jump really high to throw that ball, to to do that thing that seems scary? Do I have what it takes to, to... to jump that creek? Do I have what it takes to learn to fish, to shoot a gun, to, you know, whatever it might be? Do I have what it takes to learn that sport and go out and climb that tree or, or use a saw or something? Do I have what it takes to do that? But that question never goes away. Men, as they grow older and, and as young adults, as teenagers, young adults, and, and grown men, they think, do I have what it takes to do what needs to be done in the moment and in this, this stage of life that I'm in? Am I able, am I capable of doing that? And I want you to hear this morning and be certain of that, yes, you have what it takes. If you're a little boy in here, or if you're a teenager, young man, or old man, you have what it takes because God made you. God made you a boy and he made you to be and like all those things that you do and all the ways that you are rambunctious and loud and and fearless, and you love all these kinds of things and you make noises. God made you the way you are because that's what he does. And he made you as a young man, and he made you as a, a, a grown man, and you have what it takes because he made you. And he equips you. Now, you have what it takes to its fullest extent when you are in Christ. 
When you're a Christian living faithful to God, then God equips you. We, talk, we look at Ephesians 6, the armor of God. God equips you with what you need, those spiritual blessings, those, those heavenly blessings to be who you need to be in your family, as a man in your family. You see, God equips you, and he assures you that you have what it takes. Men need to accomplish. Men need to conquer. Men need to lead. Men need to fix things. Men need, men need to serve and protect and provide. It's within our masculine nature that God created us with. Those are good traits. Those are good things. Men need to be able to fight for what's right, to protect and fix and conquer where would we be without the men throughout history who have done those kinds of things? And so we want to encourage that. And that's part of how God made you to be. Of course, as we've said and could always say so many good things about moms and wives and women, but we want to focus on men and fathers and husbands today. You see, God gives you what you need and not only does he give you what you need when you're in Christ, he's with you every step of the way. See, he doesn't leave you alone out there not knowing what to do. He gives you what you need and he's with you when you are a Christ follower. To help you figure this out because you don't always know what to do or how to do it. You face levels that you've never been before, challenges you've never had before. Uh, you're confronted with stuff you've never seen before. God is with you when you're with him. Dads, we may provide for all of the financial needs of our families, all of the material needs. We may uh, work hard and do a great job in many ways, and we may actually be a halfway decent guy. But I want you to know that even though all of those things are important, the thing that really matters most is are you in Christ and are you pointing your family towards Jesus? Meeting the spiritual needs of your family is first and foremost. The needs that your, your wife has, the needs that your children have that are spiritual, those are more important than the physical needs. I'm, I've learned those physical needs never go away. Have you learned that too? Those physical needs never stop. And while sometimes you can take care of those and sometimes you can't and sometimes it's later, what's most important, and we lose sight of this, don't we? What's most important are the spiritual needs of our family. That's what we need to focus mostly on. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. And I know there's a bigger context here. In fact, in, in a couple of months or so on Sunday nights, we're going to do a sermon series on the book of Ephesians. I'm looking forward to that. So we'll get more into this later on Sunday nights. But let's just look at these two verses here in Ephesians 5, verses 25 and 26. Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So what did Paul mean when he wrote the words that we're to love our wives as 
Christ loved the church. What did Paul mean by that? And if you're like me, you read that and you think, well, that's nothing I can do. I, I can't do that. I can't reach that standard. I don't know how to do that. And any honest husband and father would feel that way. That's a high standard. Well, all I want to do today is I want to encourage you and I want to, I want to help point you to here's where we're striving for. This is what we're striving to be. Here's the goal. See, see, men, we, we want a finish line. We want a goal. We want to know, okay, what's the win? How do I win this? I want to tell you this is how you win. I don't want to beat you up. I want to say this is how you score the touchdown. Is you, you see the standard up here, the goal, where Jesus wants us to be, who he wants us to be, and what's he, what he wants us to do. And you run for that, okay? And you don't stop running. You're going to trip and fall sometimes. You're going to mess up. You're going to blow it sometimes. But you get up again and keep running towards that standard, towards that goal line. First of all, we need to understand in the context quickly of Ephesians 5, 25 and 26 here that Paul has just written to women in verse 22 and he commanded them to what? Submit to their husbands. And now he turns around and he commands men, you love your wives. And not only do you love your wives, I'm going to show you how to love your wife. You love her this way as... Christ loved the church. That's how you're supposed to love your wife. And he's going to go on to talk about nourishing and cherishing later on, and we'll get to that in our, in our series. And so the question for dads is, are you loving like Jesus loved? Are you loving your wife? Are you loving your family like Jesus loves the church? That's the standard, that's the goal, that's the finish line, that's the bar we're trying to get to that we're working towards. And we can compare ourselves. We, say, we, we need a standard, we need a guide, we need, we need a, a direction to go. Well, that's the direction to go. That's where we go. How do I get there? What do I need to do to do that? That's what I want us to see this morning. See, a godly wife will willingly submit to a godly husband loving her like Jesus loves the church. God designed it to work that way. God created marriage. People didn't think of marriage. God created it. It's a God thing. And he designed it for two Christ followers, uh, male and female, to come together in a marriage union. And for this to be the kind of relationship that they have. And, And this also means husbands and dads, that we need to learn to make choices that benefit our wives. In other words, we need to ask, what is good for her? What benefits her? What are her needs? Now, this is different than running around, doing everything to keep her from pouting and making her happy in that way. That's not what Paul is teaching. And that gets twisted up in our minds sometimes. We think that's what it means. That's not what this is about because that's not her loving you in the right way. And that's not you loving her in the right way. This is looking after all of her needs, caring for her enough that you want her to be happy. And guess what she wants for you? She wants you to be happy as well. And you see the mutual relationship that is there. You see, Christian marriage turns the world's idea of happiness upside down. The world doesn't 
approach marriage in the way that Christians approach marriage. The world, worldly understanding is that I go into a marriage to seek my happiness. I want to be happy. I want to get the best deal I can get because I want to be happy. We seek our happiness. But in the Christian marriage, the way God has designed it and intended it is two Christ followers to go into a marriage seeking the other person's happiness, seeking what's good for them, what's best for them, what their needs are, seeking to make them happy. And guess what happens when we do that? Both find themselves truly happy. In fact, far happier than they would have been seeking their own happiness. Do you see that? We also learn from this passage, our text here, that loving our wives as Christ loved the church requires action. Why does it require action? We don't always feel like doing anything, do we? We would rather sit on the couch or do something we want to do. But love, as we see in the Bible, and sometimes it challenges us, doesn't it? Requires action. Because we see in verse 26 that Jesus gave himself to the church. He gave himself up. So husbands, we see that Jesus gave himself up. We're supposed to love our wives, our families as Christ loved the church. That means we've got to give up ourselves. That means that we don't come first. We go last. Because we are seeking what is best for them. We give up ourselves. We lay down our lives. We sacrifice ourselves for their benefit. You see, love is action, and giving is an action, and that means it takes effort. Now, in Ephesians 5, we see Paul teaches us two things at once, and you see it more if you read the whole context there. But he's taught us about the nature of the relationship between husband and wife, and he's also taught us about the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. He's, He's... He's intertwining them to teach us about both. And he's showing how important marriage is, the way God designed it. And he's showing how important the church is to Jesus. And we're members of that church when we're in Christ. You see, Jesus loves the whole world. And and a husband can love other people, other family members and, and friends and things like that. But who is most dear to him is his wife, his bride just like the bride of Jesus is most dear to him. He died for all the world. He loves all the world. But his his bride is his treasured possession. Jesus loves his bride unselfishly. He he doesn't love her for what she has and what he's going to get from her. He loves his bride for who she is and who he helps her as the spiritual leader to become. And that's the way we're supposed to love our wives. Jesus has a constant an enduring, never-ending love for his people, which shows us the kind of love we're supposed to have for our spouses. And we also see that Jesus' greatest concern is for the eternal life of the church, for the spiritual needs, the spiritual concerns of the church. And that's what our most important concern is. That's what our number one concern is when we're a, a father and a husband is for the eternal life of our family. All the other things are important, but that's most important. That's at the top of the list. What about their spiritual well-being? 
That's what Paul's saying in verse number 26. Look at this. The reason we love as Jesus loved the church is because we are most concerned about our family's spiritual well-being. Look, he writes that we might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water through the word. So Paul's intertwining baptism and the church and what Jesus does and how he helps lift us up. And then he continues in verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands and fathers as a spiritual leader in our homes. And yes, that's our role as the spiritual leader in our homes. We have to make a lot of decisions, don't we? Some of those are popular and some of those are not popular. Sometimes everybody's happy and sometimes nobody's happy. But that just comes with the territory of making the decisions that are best for the spiritual needs of our family. So if you're anything like me at all, you're like, well, how on earth can I do this? How can I do anything like this? What do I do to even attempt this? How do I try to get there to this standard that God has for us to try to be like that? I want to be like that. Help me see the path. Where's the, where's the opening? Where's the hole to run through so I, can, so I can get there? Well, let me take you back to the greatest commandment where Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is, and what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he said, the second is is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, in the last verse, he said, it's all about that. The whole law hinges on these two things. In other words, everything is about, everything follows, everything comes after, falls in line after me getting my priorities straight and loving God with my all. Because when I love God with my all, then that means I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. And who's your closest neighbor? Your closest neighbor is your family living in your house. And I'm going to love them the way I'm supposed to. And then I'm going to love others the way I'm supposed to. You see, my my priorities, my relationships, and my goals in life all fall in line because I get the first thing right, that, that, that first commandment all the way back to the Old Testament. And then Paul helps us with some practical things, husbands. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul wrote in 4 through 7, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so we think about our lives and we're like, yep, well, I'm an example of how not to do all that. You know, (laughs) that's how we feel, right, a lot of times. Well, I, I don't even know if I ever do any of these things. But again, I want to encourage you. It's like, these are tangible things. We want real things. Okay, well, tell me, what can I do? Let's start practicing these things. Maybe you're doing great on some of these things, but maybe, maybe you kind of stink on a few of these things. And you can have this list and know, okay, if I work on these things, I'll be loving like Jesus loved. If I practice these things, if I, if I try to remember this and focus on these things, then, then I can start learning how to love as Jesus loved. And that's who he wants me to be as a husband and father. And, of course, we spend the rest of our lives trying to do this, right? Practicing, just trying to get this down. 
but we spend the rest of our lives as husbands, as fathers, and, and as we know in this context as Christians, running towards that goal. But that's the thing. You don't get the football and run towards the goal and see someone up ahead in front of you and decide, oh, wow, I'm just going to quit, and you just, you just fall on the ground, do you? Matt, I don't think that's the way it's supposed to work, is it? And you don't, you don't get a clear shot all the way to the goal and then decide, well, I've got a clear shot. I'm going to take a break. Anybody bring me some Gatorade? You know, it's not break time. You never stop running to the goal, whether you've got obstacles in the way whether you, you don't have obstacles in the way, you run towards the goal line, the finish line. And you practice these things the rest of your life. Men, we can easily think that we can't do this. But I'm, I want to reemphasize to you that you have what it takes to do these things. You can do this. Why? Because Paul told us to do it. That means we're capable and able to measure up to this. We can love like Jesus did, or else the Bible wouldn't have commanded us to do it. And when you're in Christ, when you're a New Testament Christian, God equips you and guides you and is with you all the way through this. The world's most powerful engine. Men, we like power. I was telling, Ryan, I was telling your dad not long ago, I said, I read an article that Honda was going to stop making gas mowers, I think, at the end of 2025. And what a terrible thing that is, in my opinion. <laughs> and so I'm going to hold on to my gas mower as long as I can. And I want my gas weed eater because I want the sound of a gas engine. I don't want the silence of a battery mower. So I want a power tool. That's what we want, right? We like the sound of an engine. The world's most powerful engine is 44 feet tall, 90 feet long, and weighs 2,300 tons. It can produce up to 109,000 horsepower. That's awesome, isn't it? But as I set up here, I want you to understand that as, as powerful as that engine is, it is not as powerful as the power at work in you to do and be what God has called you to do and be. He, to, to be the Christian husband and father that he would have you to be. You've got more power than the world's most powerful engine at work in you to do that. Look at quickly at Ephesians 1.19. And 20, Paul says that the immeasurable greatness of God's power is at work in those who believe in Him. In other words, Christians, when you're in Christ, you've been baptized into Christ. And it's that power, that same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. That same power is at work in you. Some of us just need to crank the engine, right? We might need to check the spark plugs. We might need to do a little working on it, but we've got that power at work in us. On July 21st, the year 365 A.D., a massive earthquake leveled the city of Curion. It's on the island of Cyprus. This city had been around at that time for already a thousand years. It had seen the Assyrians and the Persians and the Romans come and go. 
It had seen the great countries and powers and armies. It saw them, you know, rise up. This was an old, old city. But on that day, this massive earthquake completely, totally leveled and destroyed the entire city. Because the city was completely destroyed, it became kind of a a time capsule because nothing was left. So when archaeologists dig it up, they would always find a snapshot into the past of what life was like, how things used to be throughout their history. The most dramatic discovery was three feet under rubble in a house where others had died, but they found the bones of a young mother who they think was about 19 years old. She was holding her young baby in her chest, close to her chest with her arms, and the baby's head was under her chin. And these are, these are the skeletal remains that were still there. She's laying on her side holding her baby. And then her arms uh, were raised to protect the baby's hand, head, and over them lay the bones of a man that they presume was her husband and the father. He had tried to shield them with his own body from the stones and rubble that was falling. His arms were wrapped around both of them, trying to protect them. There they were, clinging to life together, being crushed by the stones. Nothing they could do would help. The mother was shielding her baby, and the husband was shielding his family. When they discovered their bones... They found a ring, perhaps similar to this one, and it had this same symbol, which was a symbol for the word Christ on the ring that laid beside the man's hand. They were a Christian family. They were Christians. They died there together. We don't know anything else about this family. We don't know where they worked. We don't know how much money they made. We don't know how much education they had. We don't know if they uh, you know, were planning to go on a vacation. We don't know if their stomachs were full or if they were empty. We don't know anything about them except this one thing, that they were Christians. If you think about it, 1,700 years later, we know one thing about them. And you know what? That's the only thing that matters. All that other stuff doesn't matter. In the end, it doesn't matter. The one thing that matters is are you in Christ? And we see them, for us, what seems to be an illustration of a Christian family, the way God intends it to be, and that husband and father being that protector and spiritual leader, and uh, husband and father that God would have them to be, and that they were in Christ. You see, that's what matters most, husbands. So a question, the question, the question for dads, the question for husbands is, are you in Christ yourself, and are you pointing your family to Jesus? Are you helping make sure that they're on the road to heaven with you?
That's the only question that really matters in life. And thousands of years from now, that will still be the only question that matters. We want to encourage you, husbands and fathers, this morning. Build you up and lift you up. You have what it takes to do it. We believe in you and we're here for you. If we can help you this morning, pray for you, comfort you, encourage you, or maybe you say, I need to get on the road. I need to be in Christ this morning and start leading my family in that direction. We want to help you this morning. You can be a Christian this morning. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.